This is Chapter 18 of Huckleberry Finn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. Chapter 18. Colonel Grangerford, Aristocracy, Feuds, The Testament, Recovering the Raft, The Woodpile, Pork and Cabbage. Colonel Grangerford was a gentleman, you see. He, he was a gentleman all over, and so was his family. He was well-born, as the saying is, and that's worth as much in a man as it is in a horse, so the widow Douglas said. And nobody ever denied that she was one of the first aristocracy in our town, and Pap, he always said it, too, though he weren't no more quality than a mud-cat himself. Colonel Grangerford was very tall and very slim, and had a darkish paley complexion, not a sign of red in it anywheres. He was clean-shaved every morning all over his thin face, and he had the thinnest kind of lips, and the thinnest kind of nostrils, and a high nose, and heavy eyebrows, and the blackest kind of eyes, sunk so deep back that they seemed like they was looking out of caverns at you, as you may say. His forehead was high, and his hair was black and straight, and hung to his shoulders. His hands was long and thin, and every day of his life he put on a clean shirt and a full suit from head to foot, made out of linen, so white it hurt your eyes to look at it. And on Sundays he wore a blue tailcoat with brass buttons on it. He carried a mahogany cane with a silver head to it. There weren't no frivolishness about him, not a bit, and he weren't ever loud. He was as kind as he could be, you could feel that, you know, and so you had confidence. Sometimes he smiled, and it was good to see, but when he straightened himself up like a liberty pole and the lightning begun to flicker out from under his eyebrows, you wanted to climb a tree first and find out what the matter was afterwards. He didn't ever have to tell anybody to mind their manners. Everybody was always good-mannered where he was. Everybody loved to have him around, too. He was sunshine most always. I mean, he made it seem like good weather. When he turned into a cloud-bank it was awful dark for half a minute, and that was enough. There wouldn't nothing go wrong again for a week. When him and the old lady come down in the morning, all the family got up out of their chairs and give them good day, and didn't set down again till they had set down. Then Tom and Bob went to the sideboard where the decanter was, and mixed a glass of bitters and handed it to him, and he held it in his hand and waited till Tom's and Bob's was mixed, and then they bowed and said, Our duty to you, sir, and madam, and they bowed the least bit in the world, and said, Thank you, and so they drank, all three, and Bob and Tom poured a spoonful of water on the sugar, and the mite of whiskey, or apple brandy, in the bottom of their tumblers, and give it to me and Buck, and we drank to the old people, too. Bob was the oldest, and Tom next, tall, beautiful men with their very broad shoulders and brown faces, and long black hair and black eyes. They dressed in white linen, from head to foot, like the old gentleman, and wore broad Panama hats. Then there was Miss Charlotte. She was twenty-five, and tall, and proud, and grand, but as good as she could be when she weren't stirred up. But when she was, she had a look that would wilt you in your tracks, like her father. She was beautiful. So was her sister, Miss Sophia, but it was a different kind. She was gentle and sweet like a dove, and she was only twenty. Each person had their own nigger to wait on them, Buck, too. My nigger had a monstrous easy time, because I weren't used to having anybody do anything for me, but Buck's was on the jump most of the time. 
This was all there was of the family now, but there used to be more, three sons. They got killed, and Emmeline that died. The old gentleman owned a lot of farms and over a hundred niggers. Sometimes a stack of people would come there, horseback, from ten or fifteen mile round, and stay five or six days, and have such junketings round about and on the river, and dances and picnics in the woods daytimes, and balls at the house nights. These people was mostly kinfolks of the family. The men brought their guns with them. It was a handsome lot of quality, I tell you. There was another clan of aristocracy around there, five or six families, mostly of the name of Shepherdson. They was as high-toned and well-born and rich and grand as the tribe of Grangerfords. The Shepherdsons and Grangerfords used the same steamboat landing, which was about two mile above our house. So sometimes when I went up there with a lot of our folks, I used to see a lot of Shepherdsons there on their fine horses. One day Buck and me was away out in the woods hunting, and heard a horse coming. We was crossing the road. Buck says, Quick, jump for the woods. We done it, and then peeped down the woods through the leaves. Pretty soon a splendid young man come galloping down the road, setting his horse easy and looking like a soldier. He had his gun across his pommel. I had seen him before. It was young Harney Shepherdson. I heard Buck's gun go off at my ear, and Harney's hat tumbled off from his head. He grabbed his gun and rode straight to the place where we was hid. But we didn't wait. We started through the woods on a run. The woods weren't thick, so I looked over my shoulder to dodge the bullet, and twice I seen Harney cover Buck with his gun. And then he rode away the way he come, to get his hat, I reckon, but I couldn't see. We never stopped running till we got home. The old gentleman's eyes blazed a minute. Twas pleasure, mainly, I judged. Then his face sort of smoothed down, and he says, kind of gentle, "'I don't like that shooting from behind a bush. Why didn't you step into the road, my boy?' "'The Shepherdsons don't, father. They always take advantage.' Miss Charlotte, she held her head up like a queen while Buck was telling his tale, and her nostrils spread and her eyes snapped. The two young men looked dark, but never said nothing. Miss Sophia, she turned pale.' but the color come back when she found the man warn't hurt. Soon as I could get Buck down by the corn-crib under the trees by ourselves, I says, "'Did you want to kill him, Buck?' "'Well, I bet I did. What did he do to you?' "'Him? He never done nothing to me.' "'Well, then, what did you want to kill him for?' "'Why, nothing. Only it's on account of the feud.' "'What's a feud?' "'Why, where was you raised?' Don't you know what a feud is? Never heard of it before. T tell me about it. Well, says Buck, a feud is this way. A man has a quarrel with another man and kills him. Then that other man's brother kills him. Then the other brothers on both sides goes for one another. Then the cousins chip in, and by and by everybody's killed off, and there ain't no more feud. But it's kind of slow and takes a long time. "'Has this one been going on long, Buck?' "'Well, I should reckon. It started thirty years ago, or summers along there. There was trouble about something, and then a lawsuit to settle it, and the suit went again one of the men, and so he up and shot the man that won the suit, which he would naturally do, of course, and anybody would. "'What was the trouble about, Buck? Land?' "'I reckon maybe. I, I don't know.' "'Well, who done the shooting?' Was it a Grangerford or a Shepherdson? Laws, how do I know? It was so long ago. 
Don't anybody know? Oh, yes, Pa knows, I reckon, and some of the other old people, but they don't know now what the row was about in the first place. Has there been many killed, Buck? Yes, right smart chance of funerals, but they don't always kill. Pa's got a few buckshot in him, but he don't mind it because he don't weigh much anyway. Bob's been carved up some with a bowie, and Tom's been hurt once or twice. Has anybody been killed this year, Buck? Yes, we got one and they got one. About three months ago my cousin Bud, fourteen years old, was riding through the woods on t'other side of the river, and didn't have no weapon with him, which was blamed foolishness, and in a lonesome place he hears a horse a-coming behind him, and sees old Baldy Shepherdson a-linkin' after him with his gun in his hand, and his white hair a-flying in the wind. Instead of jumpin' off and takin' to the brush, Bud loud he, he could outrun him. So they had it, nip and tuck for five mile or more, the old man a-gaining all the time. So at last Bud seen it weren't any use, so he stopped and faced around so as to have the bullet holes in front, you know. And the old man he rode up and shot him down. But he didn't get much chance to enjoy his luck, for inside of a week our folks laid him out. I reckon that old man was a coward, Buck. I reckon he warn't a coward, not by a blame sight. There ain't a coward amongst them Shepherdsons, not a one, and there ain't no cowards amongst the Grangerfords, either. Why, that old man kept up his end in a fight one day for a half an hour against three Grangerfords and come out winner. They was all a horseback. He lit off of his horse and got behind a little woodpile and kept his horse before him to stop the bullets. But the Grangerfords stayed on their horses and capered around the old man and peppered away at him, and he peppered away at them. Him and his horse both went home pretty leaky and crippled, but the Grangerfords had to be fetched home, and one of them was dead, and another died the next day. No, sir, if a body's out hunting for cowards, he don't want to fool away any time amongst them Shepherdsons, because they don't breed any of that kind. Next Sunday we all went to church, about three mile, everybody a horseback. The men took their guns along, so did Buck and kept them between their knees, or stood them handy against the wall. The Shepherdsons done the same. It was pretty ornery preaching, all about brotherly love and such like tiresomeness, but everybody said it was a good sermon, and they all talked it over going home, and had such a powerful lot to say about faith and good works and free grace and preferor destination and I don't know what all, that it did seem to me to be one of the roughest Sundays I run across yet. About an hour after dinner everybody was dozing around, some in their chairs and some in their rooms, and it got to be pretty dull. Buck and a dog was stretched out on the grass in the sun sound asleep. I went up to our room and judged I would take a nap myself. I found that sweet Miss Sophia standing in her door, which was next to ours, and she took me in her room and shut the door very soft and asked me if I liked her, and I said I did and she asked me if I would do something for her and not tell anybody, and I said I would. Then she said she'd forgot her testament, and left it in the seat at church between two other books, and would I slip out quiet and go there and fetch it to her, and not say nothing to nobody. And I said I would. So I slid out and slipped off up the road, and there weren't anybody at the church except maybe a hog or two, for there weren't any lock on the door, and hogs likes a punchin' floor in summertime because it's cool. If you notice, most folks don't go to church only when they've got to go. But a hog is different. Says I to myself, something's up. 
it ain't natural for a girl to be in such a sweat about a testament, so I give it a shake, and out drops a little piece of paper with half-past two wrote on it with a pencil. I ransacked it and couldn't find anything else. I couldn't make anything out of that, so I put the paper in the book again, and when I got home and upstairs there was Miss Sophia in her door waiting for me. She pulled me in and shut the door. Then she looked in the testament till she found the paper, and as soon as she read it she looked glad, and before a body could think she grabbed me and give me a squeeze and said I was the best boy in the world and not to tell anybody. She was mighty red in the face for a minute, and her eyes lighted up, and it made her powerful pretty. I was a good deal astonished, but when I got my breath I asked her what the paper was about, and she asked me if I had read it, and I said no, and she asked me if I could read writing, and I told her no, uh, only coarse hand, and then she said the paper weren't anything but a bookmark to keep her place, and I might go and play now. I went off down to the river, studying over this thing, and pretty soon I noticed that my nigger was following along behind. When we was out of sight of the house, he looked back and around a second, and then comes a-running and says, "'Mars George, if you'll come down into the swamp, I'll show you a whole stack of water moccasins.' Thinks I, "'That's mighty curious.' He said that yesterday. He ought to know a body don't love water moccasins enough to go around hunting for them. What is he up to, anyway?' So I says, "'All right. Trot ahead.' I followed a half a mile. Then he struck out over the swamp and waded ankle-deep as much as another half-mile. We come to a little flat piece of land which was dry and very thick with trees and bushes and vines, and he says, "'You shove right in there just a few steps, Mars George. Dat's where they is. I seed em before. I don't care to see em no more.' Then he slopped right along and went away. Pretty soon the trees hit him. I poked into the place a ways, and come to a little open patch as big as a bedroom all hung round with vines, and found a man laying there asleep. And by jings, it was my old Jim. I waked him up, and I reckoned it was going to be a grand surprise to him to see me again, but it weren't. He nearly cried he was so glad, but he weren't surprised. Said he swum along behind me that night, and heard me yell every time but doesn't answer, because he didn't want nobody to pick him up and take him into slavery again. Says he, I got hurt a little and couldn't swim fast, so I was a considerable ways behind you towards the last. When you landed, I reckoned I could catch up with you and land, without having to shout at you. But when I see that house, I begin to go slow. I was off too fur to hear what they say to you. I was afraid of the dogs. But when it was all quiet again, I knowed you was in the house. So I struck out for the woods to wait for a day. Early in the morning, some of the niggers come along, gwine to the fields, and they took me and showed me this place, where the dogs can't track me on accounts of the water, and they brings me truck to eat every night, and tells me how's you're getting along. Why didn't you tell my Jack to fetch me here sooner, Jim? Well, twa'n't no use to disturb you, Huck, till we could do something, but we's all right now. I've been a-buying pots and pans and vittles, as I got a chance, and a-patching up de raft nights when— What raft, Jim? Our old raft. You mean to say our old raft weren't smashed all to flinders? No, she weren't. She were tore up a good deal. One end of her was. But there wasn't no great harm done. Only our traps was most all lost. If we hadn't a dive so deep and swum so fur under water in the night— 
hadn't been so dark, and we weren't so skeered, and been sich pumpkin-heads, as they says is, we'd a seed the raft. But it's just as well we didn't. Case now she's all fixed up again most as good as new, and we's got a new lot of stuff, in the place of what is lost. Why, how did you get a hold of the raft again, Jim? Did you catch her? How I gwine to catch her, and I out in the woods? No. Some of de niggers found her ketched on a snag along here in the bend, and they hid her in a crick amongst the willows, and they was so much jawin bout witchin' em she belonged to do the most debt that I come to hear about it pooty soon, so I ups and settles the trouble by tellin' em she don't belong to none of em but to you and me, and I asked em if they gwine to grab a young white gentleman's property and get a hidin' for it. Then I give em a ten cents apiece, and they is mighty well satisfied, and wish some more rafts had come along and make em rich again. Days mighty good to me, these niggerses, and whatever I wants em to do for me, I don't have to ask em twice, honey. That Jack's a good nigger and pooty smart. Yes, he is. He ain't ever told me you was here, told me to come, and he'd show me a lot of water moccasins. If anything happens, he ain't mixed up in it. He can say he never seen us together, and it'll be the truth. I don't want to talk much about the next day. I reckon I'll cut it pretty short. I waked up about dawn and was a-going to turn over and go to sleep again when I noticed how still it was. Didn't seem to be anybody stirring. That weren't usual. Next I noticed that Buck was up and gone. Well, I gets up a-wondering and goes downstairs. Nobody around. Everything as still as a mouse. Just the same outside. Thinks I, what does it mean? Down by the woodpile I comes across my jack and says, what's it all about? says he, "'Don't you know, Mars George?' "'No,' says I, "'I don't.' "'Well, then, Miss Sophia's run off. Deed she has. She run off in the night sometime. Nobody knows just when. Run off to get married to that young Harney Shepherdson, you know, leastwise so they spec. The family found it out about half an hour ago, maybe a little more. And I tell you, they weren't no time loss. Such another hurrying up guns and horses you never see.' The women folk has gone for to stir up the relations, and old Mars Saul and the boys tucked their guns and rode up the river road for to try to catch that young man and kill him, for he can get across the river with Miss Sophia. I reckon they's going to be mighty rough times. Buck went off without waking me up. Well, I reckon he did. They weren't going to mix you up in it. Mars Buck he loaded up his gun and loud he's going to fetch home a Shepherdson or bust. Well, there'll be plenty of em there, I reckon, and you bet you'll he'll fetch one if you gets a chance. I took up the river road as hard as I could put. By and by I began to hear guns a good ways off. When I come in sight of the log store and the woodpile where the steamboats lands, I worked along under the trees and brush till I got to a good place, and then I clumb up into the forks of a cottonwood that was out of reach, and watched. There was a wood rank four foot high and a little ways in front of the tree, and first I was going to hide behind that, but maybe it was luckier I didn't. There was four or five men cavorting around on their horses in the open place before the log store, cussing and yelling, and trying to get at a couple of young chaps that was behind the wood rank alongside of the steamboat landing. But they couldn't come it. Every time one of them showed himself on the river side of the woodpile he got shot at. The two boys was squatting back to back behind the pile, so they could watch both ways. 
By and by, the men stopped cavorting around and yelling. They started riding towards the store. Then up gets one of the boys, draws a steady bead over the wood rank, and drops one of them out of his saddle. All the men jumped off of their horses and grabbed the hurt one and started to carry him to the store. And that minute, the two boys started on the run. They got halfway to the tree I was in before the men noticed. Then the men see them and jumped on their horses and took out after them. They gained on the boys, but it didn't do no good. The boys had too good a start. They got to the woodpile that was in front of my tree and slipped in behind it. And so they had the bulge on the men again. One of the boys was Buck, and the other was a slim young chap about nineteen years old. The men ripped around a while and then rode away. As soon as they was out of sight, I sung out to Buck and told him. He didn't know what to make of my voice coming out of the tree at first. He was awful surprised. He told me to watch out sharp and let him know when the men come in sight again. Said they was up to some devilment or other. Wouldn't be gone long. I wished I was out of that tree, but I doesn't come down. Buck begun to cry and rip and loud that him and his cousin Joe, that was the other young chap, would make up for this day yet. He said his father and his two brothers was killed, and two or three of the enemy said the Shepherdsons laid for them in the ambush. Buck said his father and brothers ought to waited for their relations. The Shepherdsons was too strong for them. I asked him what was become of young Harney and Miss Sophia. He said they'd got across the river and was safe. I was glad of that. But the way Buck did take on because he didn't manage to kill Harney that day he shot at him, I ain't ever heard anything like it. All of a sudden, bang, bang, bang! goes three or four guns. The men had slipped around through the woods and come in from behind without their horses. The boys jumped for the river, both of them hurt, and as they swum down the current, the men run along the bank shooting at them and singing out, Kill them! Kill them! It made me so sick I most fell out of the tree. I ain't a-going to tell all that happened. It would make me sick again if I was to do that. I wished I hadn't ever come ashore that night to see such things. I ain't ever going to get shut of them. Lots of times I dream about them. I stayed in the tree till it begun to get dark, afraid to come down. Sometimes I heard guns away off in the woods, and twice I seen little gangs of men gallop past the log store with guns, so I reckoned the trouble was still a-going on. I was mighty downhearted, so I made up my mind I wouldn't ever go near that house again, because I reckoned I was to blame somehow. I judged that that piece of paper meant that Miss Sophia was to meet Harney somewheres at half-past two and run off, and I judged I ought to told her father about that paper and the curious way she acted, and then maybe he would a locked her up and this awful mess wouldn't ever happened. When I got down out of the tree, I crept along down the river bank a piece and found the two bodies laying in the edge of the water and tugged at them till I got them ashore. Then I covered up their faces and got away as quick as I could. I cried a little when I was covering up Buck's face, for he was mighty good to me. It was just dark now. I never went near the house, but struck through the woods and made for the swamp. Jim warn't on his island, so I tramped off in a hurry for the crick and crowded through the willows, red-hot to jump aboard and get out of that awful country. The raft was gone. My souls, but I was scared. I couldn't get my breath for most a minute. Then I raised a yell. A voice, not twenty-five foot from me, says, "'Good land! Is that you, honey? Don't make no noise!' It was Jim's voice. Nothing ever sounded so good before. 
I run along the bank a piece and got aboard, and Jim he grabbed me and hugged me. He was so glad to see me. He says, Laws, bless you, child. I's right down sure you's dead again. Jack's been here. He say he reckoned you's been shot, cause you didn't come home no more. So I's just dis minute a startin' de raft down toward de mouth der crick, so's to be all ready for to shove out, and leave soon as Jack comes again and tells me for certain you is dead. Lawsy, I's mighty glad to get you back again, honey. I says, All right, that's mighty good. They won't find me, and they'll think I've been killed and floated down the river. There's something up there that'll help them think so. So don't you lose no time, Jim, but just shove off for the big water as fast as ever you can. I never felt easy till the raft was two mile below there and out in the middle of the Mississippi. Then we hung up our signal lantern and judged that we was free and safe once more. I hadn't had a bite to eat since yesterday, so Jim, he got out some corn dodgers and buttermilk and pork and cabbage and greens. There ain't nothing in the world so good when it's cooked right. And whilst I eat my supper, we talked and had a good time. I was powerful glad to get away from the feuds, and so was Jim to get away from the swamp. We said there weren't no home like a raft after all. Other places do seem so cramped up and smothery, but a raft don't. You feel mighty free and easy and comfortable on a raft. End of chapter 18